0: I am delighted to welcome the Reverend Canon Mark Oakley, who is uh, currently Canon Chancellor of St. Paul's Cathedral. Uh, Mark, I've given them your name and your current job title, but what on earth is a Canon Chancellor? What what do you do at St. Paul's Cathedral? Uh,
1: Well, the cathedral is run by four canons and a dean. And I'm one of the canons, and I'm in charge of all our educational work and our outreach. So I have a little responsibility. I have to say, I've never worn so few clothes for worship in my entire life. At St Paul's Cathedral, I always feel like Lady Gaga on tour. We have have so many glittering clothes, and I can't tell you how relieved I am today not
0: to have to wear them all. Um, You you very kindly had me preaching at your place last year, and I remember the conversations about what I should wear, because I got this thing saying, please come robed according to the liturgical colour of the season. And I thought, Baptists really don't do that. So we had an exchange of emails about what I could get away with wearing. Um, But this isn't your first time preaching here, is it?
1: Uh, no, I used to be the rector of St Paul's Covent Garden, and uh, 15 years ago, Brian, Brian invited yes, invited me to preach. Brian, I have to say, was the kindest, sanest of all the clergy of the area in those days, and uh, looked after me very well. And uh, he was a very good friend to me.
0: And you're just moving on to a new position. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, I leave St. Paul's after eight years. I leave at the end of August to become the Dean of St. John's College, Cambridge. Uh, So I'll be doing some teaching and I'm in charge of the chapel, which has the choir school and a famous choir and all that, and uh, part of the governance of the college.
2: Our first reading this morning is from John's Gospel, chapter 10, and verses 14 to 16. I am the Good Shepherd... I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and then 12 to 15. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely, and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue with peace with everyone, and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and through it may become defiled. Father, all those thoughts and words which come
1: from you will you please bless them and make them fruitful? And all those thoughts and words which come not from you, but from our vanity, will you please forgive? Amen. Amen. 1848 was quite a year. Not only were revolutions going on all across Europe, nation states were being created, Marx and Engels were publishing their Communist Manifesto here in London. There was a Californian gold rush going on. Wagner sat down and began writing his Ring Cycle. WG Grace arrived in the world and Emily Bronte departed it. Just down the road, electric lights were being exhibited for the very first time in Trafalgar Square. And right at the end of the year, in December, Bloomsbury Chapel was opened. Samuel Morton Pito had helped fund it, having made a lot of money building railways. Not sure what he'd make of them today. And the first minister here was William Brock. And Brock wrote a foundation statement And here's just a part of it. In the year 1848, a spacious chapel was erected in Bloomsbury for the worship of God and the preaching of the gospel. In the hope that in due time, a congregation might be gathered within its walls and that ultimately a church might be formed in connection with it. Which recognizing no other baptism but the immersion of professed believers should welcome to its fellowship all followers of Christ. Should observe the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day and should co-operate with other churches of Christ in such works of faith and labors of love as are incumbent on all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that last statement, a commitment to work together with other churches, Brock took really very seriously. And indeed on Sunday mornings, it was said at the time that he was seen walking down Gower Street with the then rector of St. George's, Bloomsbury, Henry Montagu Villiers, who later became a Bishop of Durham. And they used to walk down Gower Street together every Sunday morning. And as they parted to go their separate ways to their different churches, they would apparently bless each other before they uh, parted each other. So uh, thank you for your invitation to me on this anniversary because I think such generosity that you've shown to me is very much part uh, of your foundations 170 years ago to cooperate in love and faith. And of course, I could now then go on to preach a sort of half-learned and very nuanced sermon on the differences of our churches and then try to round it off with a great celebration of our diversity and that sort of thing. You know, I just think times are too urgent to indulge ourselves on ourselves, on our differences. Because 170 years later, we're living in a very different world. And your charge here is my charge. And that's going to be enough, I think, this morning to preach the gospel. Another of your neighbors is, of course, the British Museum. And if you went for a walk around there after this service, you'll see all the statues and the paintings of all the old gods of Greece and Rome. And a lot of people at the moment are very dismissive of religion. And what they're failing to see is that new gods have moved in. They are living and breathing in our own day. And they are so strong that we're not seeing them. And there are lots of these gods. And I'm just going to mention four of them to you to see if you recognize them. So the first god that's alive and kicking in 21st century Europe, is called Gloss. Gloss is the goddess of beauty and surfaces, very fickle, incarnated in paper and adverts. She is so big that she makes us feel really small and ugly. We're drawn by her siren voice, but her perfection is impossible, even if you do anoint yourselves every morning with her sensuous creams, because you're worth it. She's very cunning. She makes humans confuse their wants for their needs, and that leads to a lot of tears. She teaches that life is survival of the fittest but never tells you fit for what. She makes objects into people, and people into objects. So actually, if you watch one of her many adverts, you can never tell if the man is actually having the affair with the woman or with the car. Gloss is desecrating human beings and their dignity, and that very quickly means that they start doing the same. Then there's obese, who is the god of gathering and acquiring, never satisfied. Happiness for him is having what you want, not wanting what you have. And he always wants more, even when he's bloated. And people say he's often found at the moment in the form of bankers, politicians. In fact, he's found in every heart that has forgotten that the best things in life are never things and that there is a price to pay when everything has a price. He's related, by the way, to that great God who makes us buy things we don't need called Ikea, (laughs) worshipped on Saturday afternoons mainly. This God magically puts a spell on us. So we spend money we don't have on things we don't want in order to impress people we don't like. And because customers are always right, then this commercialism is changing our characters and values and the purpose of goods. It's all eroded in the hope that we just store up so we can somehow be happy. And obese is laughing at us as he sees money turning us into people we would really prefer not to be but without us even noticing. Then there's instantaneous who's the goddess of now. She can't wait. So fast cars, fast food, fast money, fast death. She's blind because she never has time to stop and see anything. Never has patience to listen. She's afraid, by the way, of people meeting face-to-face in case they discover the joy of wasting time together. So she's invented a lot of little screens and big screens. Interesting word, screen. Screening us off often from one another. And she hates things that are ambiguous. So relationships, poetry, faith, art. She seduces us instead with quick clarity and easy answers. And the trouble is, such a black and white view of the world stops us seeing the color. And finally, there's Punch, god of violence and division. If hate can be escalated, well, he's going to have a go. If they don't agree with you, lash out. If they're different, slap them down. If they're not in the majority, just don't invite them. When in doubt, well, just punch them. Now, obviously, punch created a lot of computer games, street gangs, film directors, one or two Anglican bishops, I think. Religious leaders are being drawn to this clarifying power But punch can be very subtle. Punch can hide in the consensus of the middle classes. And his punch is not always a fist, but very plausible, respectable-sounding words. And he can make you feel better even as society is fragmenting around you. He loves, by the way, to play a trick on us. He loves to make us yawn when the conversation turns to human responsibilities, refugees, the poor, the marginalized, the environment, an endangered creation, equality, the danger of the market being its own morality, he makes us yawn. But these are all the things that Christians believe are very close to God's heart. Punch, at the moment... And he's very active in certain parts of the world. Punch is making the world a place where if you're not at the table, you're probably on the menu. A place where we can't even trust the words of our leaders who campaign now in graffiti and then govern in tweets. Leaders who make us shrug our shoulders to think that everything is possible. And nothing is true. So, let's not pretend that we are in some God-free world. We're in pandemonium, all the devils. The question's going to be, which God you have chosen to follow, or which God's got hold of you. And the question in here, and it was 170 years ago, and it's still fresh now, is where are you placing your faith and your trust and your hope? Or frame it in the words of our first lesson, who will be shepherding your soul? I believe that God loves us just the way we are, but God loves us so much, he doesn't want us to stay like that. You and I have all been given a great gift. It's called our being. And we're asked to give a great gift back. It's called our becoming. Who we become with the one life we've been given. That's our gift back. And who we become will depend on the gods we cling to. Because we begin to reflect what we worship. Last Sunday in the Church of England. We talked about seasonal Sundays. Last Sunday... ...in the Church of England, we remembered John the Baptist. And because we're very polite Anglicans... ...we always speak to God as if we're in a sort of drawing room having tea. It's very polite language. And we prayed this. We prayed that we would speak truth... ...boldly rebuke vice... ...and patiently suffer for the truth's sake. And we thought about John the Baptist. And I'm guessing that no one ever walked home from the River Jordan and shook John the Baptist's hand and said, nice sermon, vicar, (laughs) before going to lunch. What happened instead is that they cut his head off because his mouth and his tongue were in it. And that's where the words came from. That's where his preaching came from. They silenced him. He had appeared in the desert, barren, dry, thirsty place just like the world today dry, barren and very thirsty and in that quietly indifferent, hot place, along comes John, like an air raid siren speaking the language of God and we call him a prophet and I don't mean he's like mystic Meg with some sort of smoke looking into a ball for the Christian, the prophet is the one who looks into the future and then reports back quickly before it's too late. And John was asking us all to take a look at ourselves, to admit where we've gone inhuman, telling us to uphold what's just and not always seek compromise someone who asked us, for God's sake, to be a citizen of the kingdom and not a consumer in a world of competition. Because that's what we're doing, consuming away. Even the environment we're breathing, we are consuming it. We're consuming our hearts away, often in envy of each other, and we're consuming away our compassion as the days pass. And anyone who tells you that belief in God shouldn't be mixed up with any political consequences, or show them John the Baptist, and then show them Martin Luther King, and Archbishop Tutu, and then show them William Wilberforce, and Elizabeth Fry, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and Edith Cavill, and Janani Luwum, and Esther John, and Bishop Jean Robinson, and ask, how would they speak the truth, and preach the gospel, and rebuke injustice, and evil, and suffer for God without being political. They're following Christ. And if Christ was just a comforting, nice man who talked about spiritual things, then why on earth did they execute him? Those who dare to preach the gospel today, just as 170 years ago, have to be brave. Because we are being asked to dispel illusions and not to leave people disillusioned. We're inviting the world to be reimagined. And we are going to sound implausible sometimes as we push back these words into the landscape God, mystery, love, eternity. The echoes have almost been lost of those words, and our job is to bring them back. Sometimes it can feel very urgent, and I believe now is one of those times. So the words of Hebrews, spot on. Lift your drooping hands, strengthen your knees, make straight paths for your feet, and strive for peace and holiness and be shepherded by Christ alone. Your first minister, Brock, wrote, every person who constitutes the church is a fellow helper to the truth. If you ever needed fellow helpers for the truth, it's now. This church, thank God, and I mean that, thank God, has a very long, and very distinguished history of preaching God to a world confused and diminished, intent on self-harm, intent on destruction. I have a feeling and a hope that this lectern will be very busy in the days and years that lie ahead. Because, and this is where I want to end, when presidents start saying these aren't people, they are animals wanting to infest a country when children are used as bargaining chips when parliaments in European countries are passing laws to imprison those who seek to help those looking for refuge when judicial independence is being removed in a Western nation. When interior ministers in others are calling at the moment for a cleansing and purification neighborhood by neighborhood. When opera, in one European country last week, has had to cancel its performances of Billy Elliot because the media say that it will turn the children of the nation gay, and promote deviance, when abuse and discrimination are just the way it goes, and in the church as much as anywhere else, when states of emergency are meaning states of control and imprisonment of lawyers and journalists and amnesty workers, as in Turkey at the moment, When human dignity is just shrugged off because human rights, well, they're a bit laughable, because we're not talking about my human rights. When we see that this is our world, 170 years later, I'm not talking 1930s, I'm talking now, then this pulpit better get busy. Because it's all contrary to the gospel. This church is here to preach. To reimagine. To call people to the hope and dream of God's kingdom for all people that this church was built to proclaim. I hope and pray very much it will be a fountain from which you can draw fresh waters. A different way of being human. People are longing for it. This is here to make Christians stand for something, not fall for anything. Stand for something, not fall for anything. And we stand for love. So let's end with that word. Eric Fried, an Austrian. He wrote a small verse and I want to end with it because this is a celebration of your church a church where by the way just before the end of the first world war in 1917 another one of your ministers here wrote this let us escape from the failure of attempting only the possible what a minister you had the failure of attempting only the possible. Here are the words of Eric Fried It's nonsense, says reason. It is what it is, says love. It's unhappiness, says caution. It's nothing but pain, says fear. It has no future, says insight. It is what it is, says love. It's ridiculous, says pride. It's impossible, says experience. It is what it is,
0: says love. Let us pray. Great God of creative abundance. We have once again eaten bread and drunk wine as your people gathered in this place on the Lord's day. And yet, we still come before you this morning as a people in need of your generous blessing, of your gracious forgiveness, of your constant remaking. And so we offer ourselves to you with open hands and receptive hearts. Take away from us all our pretensions of self-reliance and unmask for us our images of self-security. Help us to realise that our fleeting blessings of health and wealth and power are fragile idols of sustenance and that we entrust our souls to them at our peril. May we learn instead to see ourselves and our world with your eyes. May we come to appreciate where true value lies, both within ourselves and in the lives of others. May our eyes be opened to the gentle gifts of grace that you have placed in our midst. And may we come to value the abundance of your hidden yet dawning kingdom as it is made real in our midst in this place. And so we offer ourselves to your service. Take the gifts of our lives and bless them that we might become a blessing to others. Whether we bring wealth or weakness, power or poverty, health or helplessness, we place our lives into your hands and we ask for your blessing. We offer before you today on our anniversary Sunday the resources of this church. We offer our resources of people, from pastors to volunteers to occasional attendees. We offer our resources of money, from that which sits in our personal bank accounts to that which we hold collectively as a community. We offer our building, our contacts, our friendships, our whole bodies and the body of Christ that is this church in this place. May we learn together the lesson that hoarding the resources of the kingdom is not what we are called to do. Grant us the courage to release to your service the gifts that you have given us. And so mindful of the needs of others, we pray for those who live in need, poverty, uncertainty and fear. Aware that you call us to play our part, in the coming of your kingdom of peace and justice. As we have eaten together, so we pray for all those who are hungry today, and especially for those who have this week used a food bank for the first time in order to feed themselves or their families. We pray for all those of us who will share lunch in this building today. Those who will sit to eat on Tuesday lunchtime and Tuesday evening. For all of the food we will share in this place this week. People sitting down together to share the blessing of food. May this tangible sign of your kingdom be transformative and life-giving in our midst. And we pray also for those who have an unhealthy or abusive relationship with food and drink. From the overweight to the anorexic, from the middle-class drinker to the hardened alcoholic, we recognise how easily the kingdom blessings of food and wine can become distorted in our own bodies. And so we pray for the various anonymous groups that meet here and for the support they give in helping people to rebalance their lives. May we learn to see ourselves as you see us. And we pray also for those who have the power to make changes at a national level, for policymakers, politicians and business and industry leaders keep them from the dehumanising commodification of humanity. May they instead find ways of bringing the body politic to health for common good. We ask for and commit ourselves to your transformative vision of a just and equal society where none go hungry and all are fed. And so finally, we pray for ourselves. May we learn to share both the hidden and visible blessings of our lives, offering ourselves and all that we are and have to the service of your inbreaking kingdom of equality and justice. All this we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.